Welcome to Raven Debriefs. I'm your host, Susan Smitten. Today's show is part of our series on Indigenous food waste and features Ed Jensen of Sequatmec Nation in South Central British Columbia. Jensen is involved in practicing, teaching, and breathing life into Sequatmec hunting traditions. Grounded in Sequatmec laws that were taught to him by his uncles and grandfather, Jensen is bringing those traditions forward by teaching new generations of Indigenous and non-Indigenous people about stewardship practices grounded in reciprocity and respect. My English name is uh, Ed Jensen. I am from Tecamloops, uh, uh, just outside the city of Kamloops, BC. I'm, my mother was Marlene Jensen of Tecamloops. Uh, my dad is Ted Garfordson. My grandparents on my mom's side were Matilda McDonald of Big Bar, BC, and Eddie Jensen of Tecamloops. Uh, my um, dad's parents were uh, Mildred Manuel to Kamloops and Gus Garfordson of Head of the Lake. My daughter's name is Tessa and my grandchildren are Tenley and Tiana. They are the primary reason I do the things I do and the work that I do. I'm a, a hunter and a fisherman and uh, a lot of the artwork that I do stems from that part of my life. I got my start in the woods quite early when I was old enough for <clears throat> my mom to trust my uncles with me and that I wasn't too much of a burden for them. Uh, they, they began taking me out into the woods. My progressive training was very long. It wasn't like they picked me up and brought me out there and all of a sudden I was a hunter. It was a very involved process. I like for for example, they they made me pack a, an empty rifle around with no bolt in it for years, till I could prove to them that I could handle it safely, and and I knew that it was sort of like a part of me that um, they began to give me ammunition for it. I had to know all about the animals I was hunting. I had to know the protocols behind the preparation and the end of the year celebrations and, and all of those sorts of things intimately. I had to know how to process animals. I, knew, I had to know how to uh, use all parts of the animal and the reason why we do the things we do as hunters. I also had to know that enormous responsibility that being a hunter is. I had a lot of time spent just listening. Um, I, I still remember the first time 
for one of the first times being out in the woods with one of my mentors and him uh, having me behind him uh, sort of traipsing along and just just um, being there and I remember piping up being a small child I, I might have been seven or eight years old and making noise like with my voice and you have to understand like I'm I was sort of chosen within my family group to to be this person to be the next generation to to come up and and be a hunter and and so I was doted on a lot and I was sort of um, sort of held up within the family group but my uncles would come to our house and they would you know, tussle my hair and, and were very joking with me all the time and, and really showing me how much they loved me. And so this time when we're out in the woods and I, I made noise for the first time in my life, my uncle, I saw my uncle get serious with me. He turned around and he scolded me and he, he said, you, you've got to be quiet. You know, this is, this is not a joke. This is, this is serious business. And so began uh, many years of training. It wasn't very far removed from pre-contact sequipment teaching. These teachings were uh, handed down generation to generation. I'm not that far from where they, they came from originally. Uh, my uncles were raised by their dad, my grandfather, Eddie Jensen. He was in turn raised by his grandfather, a man named Felix. My grandfather was, from what I understand from family stories, very young, like maybe four or five years old. My great-grandfather, Felix, began to mentor him as a horseman, as a, a hunter and a fisherman. And he gave to him all of the sequestered values. My grandfather, Eddie, was born in the uh, 20s, 1920-ish. So if you do the math, uh, Felix would have been born uh, mid-1800s sometime. And he was raised by his grandfather, who would have been alive at the time or before contact here in uh, the interior. Um, I'm very lucky and fortunate to, to be a part of that transmission of knowledge. It all very much ties back to that simple thing, and that's respect respect for the water and respect for the fish and respect for everything around those those places. The Sequepnik, we had a pretty strong population uh, pre-contact and pre-smallpox. We had ways of ensuring continued runs of fish and uh, like trout in the spring or salmon in the summer or uh, migrations of, of elk and deer. We've got general laws that drive that, sort of that one in four mentality, you know, see four, take one, and let the other three go. That ensures that our grandchildren are gonna 
have the same opportunities. And we did that for thousands of years, uh, year in and year out. The type of knowledge that Ed Jensen speaks about as a hunting guide and carrier of Sequetmik traditions is part of the evidence being gathered to form the basis of the Sequetmik Nation title case, proving that Aboriginal ownership of and jurisdiction over lands and waters predates colonization, relies on oral histories like the ones Jensen is carrying. You're listening to Raven Debriefs. To learn more about how Raven is supporting Sequetmik Nation in their title challenge, visit raventrust.com. The most important lesson I learned was about respect. I was shown that in a myriad of ways, from sitting in on the edges of high mountain meadows, watching animals, how they interact with each other, how they showed to me that they have, they also have spirits. They know things like love and caring for each other. They know what fear is and they also know what pain is. So I have to hold that highest level of respect so that I know I'm not doing things to hurt or harm our animal relatives. There's a certain point you hit and you realize that you're you're killing being <laughs> you're ending life and it's not uh, a, a matter to be taken lightly and so that becomes also burdensome on the spirit of a, of a human being it's a responsibility that i carry to to move that knowledge forward so that uh, the ones uh, that are coming up behind me can learn the values that I've learned and they can progress and do those things that they, you know, need to do to, to show their grandchildren and, and so on. So. Jensen's work involves not only carrying and passing on knowledge, but in creating artistic and functional hunting tools based on the designs of his ancestors. His studio in Kamloops is full of beautifully wrought spears, arrowheads, and bone-handled knives that are made entirely from natural materials. The other part of my life is I'm, I'm a full-time artist. That's how I make a living. And a great deal of my resources come from animals. And their bones, their antlers, their sinew their flesh. I, uh, I'm trying to keep a big part of Sequepnik tradition alive. I do a lot of teaching. I share my artwork across the land. I've got uh, pieces all over North America and in Europe and Australia and New Zealand. And... So how did a kid growing up on a reserve outside of small town BC learn to make stone tools? Here Ed explains his origin story that is part instinct, part research and all passion. Back then there was no internet and very, very little resources in, in my school that talked about flint napping. I began chipping and shaping stones instinctively and on my own. 
I've been doing it a long time. There is a resurgence happening around me as a core. And it's something that just came to me naturally uh, and sort of out of need. My, my mom was a single parent and she raised me and my sisters on her own. During my childhood, we didn't have very much money or things. My mom did her best um, with what she had. We didn't, we didn't get motorbikes and, and uh, hockey gear and toys and, and such. We were poor. So a lot of the entertainment that I had as a, as a boy and, and having that passion I had for already instilled in me as a hunter and a fisherman uh, led to me exploring first and foremost archery. I began my reconstructive skills quite naturally in the backyard. I'd cut down a, a chokecherry bush and then I would shape it into a crude bow and string it with baling twine. And then I would go out down to the creek and, and cut some uh, long straight rose canes, search around for some feathers and tie them on there with whatever string or thread I could find. And then uh, tie some very crude arrowheads to the front of them. One day I found a, a chunk of bottle glass <laughs> and that opened my eyes. I found that very quickly I could shape glass arrowheads very crudely, but they were, they were deadly. <laughs> Grade four or five or something. My school class uh, took a field trip to the Kamloops Museum. We were cruising around in the museum and looking at uh, a lot of heritage stuff like from from settlers and and uh, we came to one part of the museum where we come around a little corner and and it was like like this light went off it, it was it was a flash of realization there was the the artifacts of my ancestors So I was looking at arrowheads and spearheads and, and knives and digging sticks and nets and, and all of these things that I was already trying to make. And, and, and I was like, wow, uh, this is a thing. And so I started to, to study the ancestors work. I, I kept like wondering how they did that how do they do that you know how how do they, they create those edges so finely and straight and how do they bend that wood that way and what is that material and and so all of these questions i had i had to slowly learn on my own close to 200 years ago the first nations around here put down the bow and arrow and picked up rifles and steel and so, you know, several generations go by and, and it's, not, it's not here anymore.
as time went on, I did manage to get my hands on some books, you know, so now I do um, very high, highly technical things like heat treatment of stone to otherwise unnappable stone nappable. It's a high level of technology and our, our people were doing it here in the valleys. There's, there's proof all over the archaeological record. A lot of these things that I create, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about what it is that tool needs to do and then and basically designing and engineering things that I know will work. It needs to work. My art needs to work. It can't be something that you just put on a wall and it's a reasonable facsimile. It needs to be a working um, tool in order for me to call it art. There's nothing that excites me more than seeing something in an old piece of literature or something that somebody else has found that I want to recreate it and make it work and show the world how we made it work as, as a, a nation and as a people and how we survived all these thousands of years here. Another way that Jensen shares his knowledge is through mentorship, just as his own uncles did with him. Ed is bringing up a new generation of sequatmic hunters and working to change the culture of hunting from the collection of trophies, which is what it has become in mainstream colonial society, to a practice that is about deep attunement with the land and deep relationship with the animals themselves. I'm getting known for... Um the knowledge I carry and also that I'm willing to share it. So I, I do get approached a lot. Tomorrow I'm doing an opening for Thompson River University uh, law program. I do a bit of work with them as it relates to sequatmic law. Also, I work with their wildlife program up there. I go in uh, at least once a year to their wildlife class and I talk about First Nations hunting and fundamentals and protocols and our outlook on sustenance hunting as opposed to the contemporary European value of trophy hunting. And I talk about the differences. I talk about the seriousness that we take with hunting as opposed to uh, writing a a test on a weekend to get a firearms license and then taking another weekend course to to get a hunting license and then the next weekend going out there and hunting it's to to first nations um, hunters true hunters that doesn't make sense at all there's so much that goes wrong i i've seen things that um i'd rather have not seen you know knowing um that an animal has suffered for a very long time. It disturbs me because I know that that animal was shot at so that somebody could beat their chest and hold up a set of antlers instead of somebody taking on the responsibility of ending life and doing it in a way that is humane as possible. 
So those are the things that I, I like to share with budding, young budding minds in all parts of the world. is Raven Debriefs. Share, follow, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I jump at opportunities to talk about things and to, to share with, uh, with the non-Indigenous peoples about who we are and what we do and, and why we do things. Sharing those high-level sequemic laws is important. I do I do talks in elementary and high schools uh, about the same thing. I, sh- I share, um, of course, my craft and and that's sort of the grab. That's what gets the kids interested. And then we we start talking about things like um, sustainable hunting practices and and protocol and spirituality and and the the um, the story about the. Uh, the animals in the agreement that we made with them at the beginning of time. The sequestered creation story, I'm told, will take seven days to tell. Seven days and seven nights, if you were to start at the beginning and, and go through it. And so there are many small stories embedded within it and they all have their periods of time right from um, the creator putting coyote out on the land to make things right and good for so that the people could live here to when coyote walks off and when his sons come in finish up a bit of his work and then they too walk on. When humans were first introduced into the world, we were put onto the land naked and afraid. We had no fur to keep us warm. We didn't have big fangs to bite with and we didn't have claws to scratch with. We couldn't run very fast, but we could think. The animals, they they saw us struggling upon the land and they, they, all, they all came together and had a meeting and they talked about us. The big theme of the meeting was how pitiful we humans are. We're so pitiful that If somebody doesn't help them, they're gonna die. This is what the animals were saying. The meeting went on for a long time, a long, long time. And finally deer stood up and said, okay, I think I know how we can help them. Look at how they stand there and shiver. I will give them my skin that they can wear to keep them warm. And then the fish got up and said, okay, I'll give them my flesh so that they can eat. And the bird said, I'll give them my feathers and, and on and on and the bones and the sinew and everything was offered up. And 
all the animals gave to the humans something so that they could survive and not be so pitiful. And so when the meeting was done, the animals called the humans in and said, look, we've been watching you and you're just so pitiful. Look at you, you're skinny, you're dirty, you stink, you're, you know, you're starving. You know, we we want to help you. And so they laid out everything that they were willing to give of themselves. And so the humans, they wept, they were, they were so grateful for the gifts that the animals were were willing to give to them. And so at the end, they asked, what can we do in turn? And all the animals, all at once, they said, you're to look after the land and everything on it. Your job is to look after everything. And humans agreed to it. And so time went on and we did our work until uh, things were changed, until European influences came, residential school came, and alcohol and drugs came. A lot of these things have been forgotten. So we've, we've failed as humans to do our part. We need to get back to those natural laws and ways of being, protocols, and ceremonies, and, and that deep level of respect that we promised at the beginning of time. That's at the core of Sequentic Law right there. begin to repair this broken covenant. The Sequentmic have begun the process of revitalization of law through actions like their title case, but also on the land with their members, working to reinstill the values that are at the heart of their creation stories so that the practices of respect and honoring of the land and of relationships become living, breathing ways of being in the world right now, today. There's a lot of people, generations coming up or, or generations before us that they're just as lost simply because of things like residential school and that interruption of transference of knowledge. They didn't get the opportunities that I, I did. My nation, the Sequapping Nation, we're made up of 17 different bands and we have a, a hub, uh, a tribal council that several of the chiefs are part of. They came together several years ago and and began uh, these hunting camps. They all agreed that they would fund these hunting camps. In the beginning, it was all about, oh, let's get them gas and bullet money. 
and that's how it worked. So you had these uh, seasoned hunters that would go to the camp, but also we were getting weekend warriors, people with very little knowledge. Things were going wrong. We had butchers calling the the tribal council saying, hey, you know, we've got some some meat in here. Is somebody going to come and get this? Uh, also, there were some animals that went bad because they, somebody didn't know how to look after it. You know, you know, no fault of their own. It, it's because nobody taught them these things. So the focus shifted over the last few years. We decided we needed to, to teach the people. The camp was organized, but it was organized with a group of hand-picked hunters. Those hunters would all take apprentices with them. And then in the camp, there would be groups who would be learning how to process and how to skin and how to to freeze and, and to cut and wrap and can and make dried meat and and all of those those things. And it's a it's an awesome success. So much so that um, this coming year we want to do a, an all-out hunting school and teach the youth the same way I was taught in a graduated system where they, in the end, have earned their right to be a hunter, to be called a hunter. That's the direction our nation is taking, and we're hoping that we can model this and spread it out across the land. This revitalization of laws and practices isn't only being done to benefit Sequatmec peoples. Ed is increasingly using media to spread his message to non-Indigenous hunters in the hopes that the broader culture of hunting can be transformed. It's this braiding of traditions that holds such promise for our common future. I've also taken that opportunity to get on that soapbox in the TV series that I'm doing. It's a reality TV series called Yukon Harvest. And I'm a hunting guide in that series. You know, that's going to be in 13 million homes. It's a bigger audience that I've ever had an opportunity to talk to. I'm guiding uh, novice hunters for first kills. So it's uh, a very special and important part of any hunter's budding career. We very much promote First Nations ways of being, ceremony and protocol and respect and preparation. I seem to have learned things that a vast majority of my peer group and even generations before me don't know. Indicators on the land, uh, indicators from bugs and animals and weather, they all provide hints. Also spiritually, I know certain protocols that are very important and I find that they do make a difference when it comes to uh, success and harvest. Um, how how easy hunts can be or uh, how hard they can be, depending on how you conduct yourself out there. All of those things are are first and foremost, and they're they're very much alive. And I think moving forward, it's only going to get better. 
hopefully more than just First Nations people get to see this series. I think media is so so huge in in this type of work. Like, you know, I'm more comfortable with a a bow or a knife, but I'm willing to take uh, whatever steps I need to to get the message out there. Today's show is the second in a series about Indigenous foodways and the incredible people who are revitalizing and carrying on stewardship traditions on the land and water. You heard from Ed Jensen, artist, knowledge keeper, hunter, teacher, and scholar of Sequentmic Law. The episode featured music by Oka and was produced by Andrea Palferman. I'm your host, Susan Smitten. Subscribe to Raven Debriefs on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes featuring Haida Lawyer, Terry Lynn Williams-Davidson, and ethnobotanist Nancy Turner. Thanks for lending us your ear.